my sponsor's website. I, uh, I'm glad to be here. I, uh, I for one found uh, Susie's report to be very informative and very rewarding, and it really cheered. Well, I guess she went home. It cheered me up quite a bit because I, uh, I think the greatest problem Alcoholics Anonymous can have is getting away from our basic trust of what we do here. And there's a tendency every few years of the General Service Conference to get involved in making new laws for all mankind where we're going to be all things to all people. And we forget that what we are is Alcoholics Anonymous. And the phrase she used again and again, singleness of purpose, that's what we're here for. I feel very strongly about that. In fact, I had a reminder of it. Uh, she mentioned one of the, one of the uh, trustees missing at this convention in New York was Jan Williamson. I remember last summer the International Convention in Seattle. I spoke on the singleness of purpose and Jan Williamson was the chairman of that meeting. We had an excellent meeting because it's a, it was under the title of our, our primary purpose. It's so easy to get away from that. I'm so glad to see that our general service convocation is getting back to this. They really get some wild hairs. Everything, every time we make something special to be something special to somebody else, we fragment. AA will continue, I believe. AA will certainly continue, but a lot of people will get on the toilet. That's the problem. Because AA is really a self-editing entity. If you get away from what we're doing here very long, pretty soon you're gone anyway. The, uh, we have an editor named John Barleycorn who seems to come through every so often and, oh, are you a fool? Come with me. You know? And that's the end. We were talking to Brick. It's an odd thing. All the old timers, almost all the old timers I know, are people who believe in the simplicity of AA. There's, there's got to be a moral there somewhere, but I can't make out what it is. I'm just giving you a lot of compliments, so it's too bad you were in the washroom. I knew you were in the washroom. You came out with your face flushed. Anyway, well, what do you want? But one of the problems, she said, the general service meeting came up with, and it's certainly true, is getting how do we get short people who come around today for a short time to stay? And that, of course, gets back to the trust of what we're talking about today, which is sponsorship. It's always been the history of Alcoholics Anonymous. People come here and think they have tried AA when they don't have any idea what the hell it's about. Because there's a certain feeling that AA deals with getting sober and maybe then returning to God somehow and then somehow telling other people how to be good. And, and you can get that message very easily and you can believe it in a week. And you can achieve its goals in a month. And you sit in AA, as we all know, and after a while, a phenomenon happens that happens to alcoholics on a continuing basis after they are sober a short time. Restlessness and discontent comes back, and irritability, and feelings of difference, and feelings of resentment, and feelings of anxiety, and feelings of depression little by little mount. And they're sitting in AA meetings while these things are coming about. And they say, well, 
I guess it's what, as I always suspected, my case is different. And it's a very funny thing, except it causes, except it causes alcoholics to get drunk and die. I, I know I've got to talk tonight, and I want to talk on that subject because I'm very close to my heart. But I'll tell you a fact of life. I see alcoholics die all the time. Most of you never would see it happen once. And the thing that always seems to... In alcoholics, become impossible to help. They wrap themselves in a cocoon where they really are now obsessed with the idea my case truly is different. And I'll bet you of alcoholics who die as a result of alcoholism who've been exposed to therapeutic sections AA, they die convinced they are not really alcoholics. Because alcoholics are people whose problem is overcome by sobriety and good works. And I got sober and I went to those meetings and did and talked about those things and listened to the old timers and goddamn it I got suicidal. That indicates my problems are much more complex and deep. Because they never discovered, they never stayed here long enough to discover that knowing about the problem and being sober is of no help whatsoever. In fact, being sober is the painful part of alcoholism. If it weren't for that, we'd all get sober and live happily ever after and tap dance down the street. But unfortunately, we have discovered little by little that being sober is not an answer. It's a paradox. At any given moment in our sobriety, being sober is enough. But overall, being sober is not enough. It's a funny little paradox. Our book says sobriety is not enough. But at any given moment, sobriety is enough. Because there are all of us who have had moments when you felt the cold wind blowing. You know, I, the best analogy I've been able to think of or ever discovered, three or four weeks ago I was uh, in a, I'll tell you what kind of a freak I am. I, when I was drinking, I got into history. I love history. Just anything to get out of now, I guess. And I became a, I became a quiz bang on the Civil War. Christ said, to me the world ended in 1865. And I used to tell about it a lot in the war as jail. But I, uh, but I've been through the Civil War now. I got to do something more. So I did too much. I've been everywhere in the Civil War. So some guys and I took, I took a, my week's vacation, one of my week's vacation, and went back to Washington three weeks ago to a seminar on carrier warfare in the Pacific, 1942 to 1945, in which I took part as a dumb little kid with pimples on his face when look at all these big goddamn ships here. So I didn't know what was going on, but I, but it's kind of interesting going back there and seeing these things. One of the places we visited was a, where the first army pilot was killed. There was something, this is kind of a long way around to tell you a parable here, but the early planes, they had one terrible thing that happened to them. They get up there and if they ever got into a tailspin, that was the end of it. They would try to pull that thing, try to pull that plane out of the tailspin, and they just crash. And they're always peeling guys' fingers off the stick after they've crashed. Finally, one guy was up at some hideously high spot, like 1,200 feet, and he got into the tailspin. He said, oh, Christ, there's no pull down this. I just, I just wouldn't die as go through this. So he pushed the stick forward, which an aerodynamic intelligence would tell him that it would go to the ground faster. And that day they discovered 
how to pull out of the tailspin. And that's the way we do it today. You push the stick forward and go out this way. And you come out of it. And so they instructed the pilots. But, but for some time afterwards, they were still digging pilots out of, out of planes because they said, yeah, I know how to pull out of the tailspin until they got in the tailspin. They said, I haven't got time for that fairy crap. I'm going to pull this up back. <laughs> And in much the same manner it is with us, I think, you know. We come here and we learn techniques such as pushing the stick forward emotionally, which is called surrender, I suppose. But when you get into a jam, it just doesn't seem right. Huh. I'm going to take care of this one myself. And there's, most old-timers, most old-timers have grass stains on the top of their head where just the last possible second, oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> and that's a, uh, that's the continuing an ongoing thing in alcoholics. We learn to surrender, but even people who know it have a hard time doing it. So how do we inculcate this to new people who know nothing? And that's where we get back to sponsorship. Sponsorship to me is the I can't think of anything more important for the sponsor and very few things more important for the baby. I don't know what you call them up here, sponsees or babies or in fact they call them pigeons or they call them all sorts of dumb things, but they're babies is what they are, because that's what we call them. <laughs> and we got clout. My home group, my home group in Los Angeles is the, uh, it's the largest weekly AA meeting in the world. We lead the world in contributions to the New York office. We, uh, and we can't even get our delegate to come and visit us. <laughs> He feels there's too much enthusiasm in that room. <laughs> but but we uh, we have come to understand, I think, many people, that sponsorship is a highly vital thing, and for a number of reasons. First, it's an interesting thing in the book. You, know, you go back to Dr. Bob's statement uh, when he was dying, and he talked to Cleveland, 19. Christy and talk, he said, and let's never become too busy to stop and give a helping hand to the man behind us because if people hadn't done that for us, none of us would be here today, and that's certainly true. In the book, Alcoholics Anonymous, there's an interesting sentence when they, they say, when all else fails, work with another alcoholic. Now, what in the hell does that mean? I, I, I can't hardly take care of things myself, and I should waste my thinking time thinking about somebody else. And it's a very common thing. It's a very common thing for sponsorship. One of the great symptoms of alcoholism, drunk or sober, is moments of extreme self-obsession in self, me. How am I feeling? Good? Better check again. Probably my parents' fault somehow. They spoiled me. They were too good. The uh, self-obsessed people get very uncomfortable, and you get out of whack. Now, what's the great value of uh, working with another alcoholic? Very simple. When I'm thinking about that sick puke, I'm not thinking about this sick puke. That's the value, one of the great values of function. Focused out of self. Have you ever stopped to notice the steps in AA or the therapies of AA are designed to get, get us out of ourselves? Not to understand or to know, 
but to take actions outside of ourselves. The actions we take in the 12 steps are not designed for the people who are the recipients. We're not, our fifth step is not designed so our sponsor can have some data on us. Well, you better shape up or I'll report about you and that sheep, you know. <laughs> I must say one thing. There is something that's sad to be said about hearing. I know that different bicycles, they do it differently. Some places they go to a clergyman, but they don't know and take the fifth step. Some places they go to a psychologist, they don't know and take the fifth step. To me, that has never been really a, a demonstration of what we admitting it to another human being. When you go to an anonymous clergyman, that's, you're in a sense taking it with God, because you're talking with God, you're saying, the human being is someone that you can trust. It's an amazing thing in sponsorship. We want you to trust your sponsor enough to share your life with them, but not to tell them your secrets. Isn't that dumb? That's not surrender by any means. But the great, the great fact of sponsorship, it seems to me, is the sponsor is focused outside of self, and is beginning to help someone. You know, there's an old truism. There's an old truism in years ago when I was in marketing and uh, working in that area. There were, we, had, we used to have, when we were teaching salesmen how to do things, we had five little things that we would use from to kind of to, to, how to take a salesman and teach him how to really know a product. First of all, we use little different words, but it's the same kind of words in the sense the thoughts are the same you do with a newcomer. First, shut up. In other words, we don't want to hear your point of view yet. We're teaching you. Nobody's concerned about your opinion because you don't know what the hell you're talking about. Now, we wouldn't say that, that coldly to a salesman. They might say it to a newcomer. <laughs> but no, not to anyone important. But that's a great thing we should talk about in sales. First, shut up. In other words, don't give us your opinions. I have a little tape here I'd like to play. Shut up, George. <laughs> George used to come in my office where I work in Skidwell in Los Angeles. And probably never that he ever dropped in and I didn't find him wound up by saying, shut up, George. You had to see he's carried that message to Fort Angeles. But anyway, the, uh, then the second step is to listen. He said, I can't help but listen. Yes, you can help but listen. You can sit there while people talk to you for three hours. You cannot hear a thing. You can just, like Star Wars, shoot down their thoughts in midair while your mind is sitting somewhere else. I wonder if I do cash a bad check at the market tonight. And keep nodding. Listen to what is being said. And there's a third step. Remember. Now you're not going to remember everything that was said, but try to remember certain things that you don't know. Remember things. As we did with Susie today. No, none of us remember everything, but we remember salient things. The, the movement of AA back to its singleness of purpose and our efforts to continue to fend off those who would pull us astray. But remember, try to remember something that maybe you can use. That's the third. Be quiet, listen, remember, then fourth one is practice it. In other words, even when nobody's around, some of these things you're hearing, practice it. 
try to do it. Try to do it when people are looking or not. But just act as though you know what you're doing when you don't. Practice it. Take the action. So the four major points in getting a basic knowledge of a product is you be quiet. Don't talk about it if you don't you're talking about it yet. Listen to what's being said. Try to remember some of these things. Practice it. Then comes the fifth and most important part of learning a product. Number five, teach it to someone else. And in teaching it to someone else, you really understand the product. There's no truism in education. No one really understands the subject until they teach it to someone else. You will discover, you will enhance your knowledge of AA multiple times by teaching it to someone else. You have to take phrases and thoughts and not only that, but you have to act better. That's one of the things you have. I never act more responsibly than I do when I'm working with a new person. It's just like teaching your kids how to drive. You drive better than you've ever driven or will ever drive again. Yes, we don't stop. We don't roll at stop signs, honey. We just stop here at stop signs. We look carefully both ways. And then we ease up to the intersection. Perhaps if she wasn't there, I'd be three blocks away by now. You know. <laughs> but I find myself doing that. Someone comes down for lunch, some new guy, and I go up the corner. Better not go. The, the don't walk sign is starting to flag. <laughs> and I think if he wasn't here, I'd be in my second course by now. Yeah. It's just a natural thing. You act better. You want to be a... You must show him with your being. It's hard to tell people to go to meetings if you don't go to meetings. A lot of sponsors do it, but then they can't understand why sponsorship doesn't work. But you must be doing what you're telling them to do. You must be seen and be a parent doing it. It's a great thing for the sponsor. I know of no action on a continuing basis that is more effective for alcoholics than continual sponsorship, working with newer people. There's a little area there that as you work with people and they stay sober and you can continue working with them and being their sponsor. I have been somewhat lucky in sponsorship because I've always been active in it. And I know that in a sense I find myself resting on my past laurel. This year, for example, I'm going to give 30-year cakes to four people I sponsor. Not very many people are doing that. And six 25-year cakes, and on and on. But a couple of years ago, a year or two ago, I suddenly realized that was the first year in 31 years I did not give a one-year cake to anybody because I wasn't work. I was such a successful sponsor. I didn't have time for the little people. And I'll tell you, I got a couple goofs in. I, I, I picked wrong. They weren't sincere the way we were in the old days. But it was really a pleasure this year to give these cakes to these little snots and... <clears throat> but it's a great thing, especially for, it may not be for all people, but for people who have a, an unsettled emotional stability such as mine, it's a continual focus. I guess there are people who become well here. I see them once in a while, they, they sometimes say things like, I, I no longer go to meetings. I, I have a new partner and I walk hand in hand with him and that seems to fill my needs. They're pretty touching until his new partner gives him a beer one day. 
but we don't judge. We just report. I don't think there's any question really about the value of sponsorship. The problem, the question comes in, how about the other side? What kind of sponsorship should you have? And what does the sponsee get out of it? Coming here to find freedom. And some of these people are becoming dictators and trying to tell me what to do. And this is the purpose of A. We're here to share, goddammit. It isn't sharing when you tell me to go to that meeting. You just tell me that maybe you're going in and I'll decide whether I should go or not. And on and on. And so we get down into that gray area of called, what's the best way to sponsor? And I, I would not at all tell you there's any best way to sponsor. In our book, written in 1938, they talk generally about sharing, little by little. Uh, and we have a pamphlet about sponsorship that talks about very effective sponsorship. But I'll tell you, there's something in the book that's indicative. In the book they talk about how alcoholics of our type can return to normal living. Now I'll tell you what that implies, whether anybody ever thinks about it or not. That implies that that alcoholic, once upon a time, had normal living. In other words, there are there are two major types of alcoholics, I would think. One, people who have grown up, got some basic ability to deal with life as adults, have gradually drank themselves out of it, over the edge, into invisible line, into pitiful and incomprehensible demoralization, and hopefully over a period of time with the aid of AA, can find their way back to the old signposts where they get off the train. That's why many of the first members of AA were, and that's why our book talks about it. But in my experience, I would say that the other kind, people who have never made any real basic adjustment to living, have never had a satisfactory life, and have used alcohol as a mask all of their lives, get sober, and we say return to normal living, that's terra incognita. No, no idea what the hell that is. Except what it looks as though other people are doing. There's no invisible line here that they cross. They, uh, I think that's what makes sometimes AA a little perplexing to young people because we have people here who drank maybe for 30 years before they, or 25 years before they crossed that invisible line. But most of us were across that line the first time out of the chute. We're very close to it. And so you hear how some old fool gets up here and says, I drank for 30 years, and the accusative some little snot nose in the front row is about 25 years old, just to say, how can you be an alcoholic, you little snot? I drank longer than you ever lived. And what they don't realize is the little snot is sitting there looking at them thinking, you can't be much of an alcoholic if you lasted 30 years, you old son of a bitch. <laughs> and it turns out it isn't how long you drank, it's when it begins to have this unnatural effect. But I would say that for myself, and many people like me, being sober does not even begin to... There is no return to normal living because there is no really fixed structure that I can return to. So in my case, although I hated to admit it, I needed a strong sponsor who would tell me what to do even though I didn't agree with it or like it. And I think that's the culmination of strong sponsorship. Bill Wilson told Dr. Bob, well, Bob, we'll 
go to Oxford movement and gradually we'll return to where we were. But I'll tell you, it doesn't work with a guy who's never, who's been on the rim his whole adult life, you know. I had my first drink when I was 15 on a ship over in Pearl Harbor early in the Second World War. And I never had any normal life after that. I looked like I had a normal life. I went back and went to college. I got married and had kids. My whole life had just been a just, what next for Christ's sake, you know. And you go to A and get sober and it's just all it does is show you how far out you are so pretty soon you drink. Now what is AA going to do? He says, we're going to share, and here are things you can, he suggests. False. You know in the book, in the original form of the book, before it was edited before printing, they didn't say suggested steps. They said more to the effect of, here are the steps we took which you must take. And somebody edited that out because it might hurt somebody's feelings. Well, maybe it does. Up in Minneapolis, there's been a movement a couple of years ago to get rid of the Lord's Prayer, because that'll send somebody's feelings. I I spoke there a couple weeks ago, and I, I'm afraid I let slip my opinion of that. <laughs> It'll be straightened out by the 19, by the year 2000 when we have the international there. All the anti-Lord's Prayers will be coming back out of the treatment center saying, I don't know what happened there. God, I don't believe him, struck me dead. The, uh, I've always felt that there are several types of sponsorship. Some people respond to love and sharing and kindness. But as I said earlier, wherever you have a pocket of enthusiasm, now I'm sure your delegate knows that, many of you know that, I, to repeat myself what I said earlier, put in context. I've been all over the world, and especially in the United States, there are pockets of enthusiasm surrounded by waves of kind of apathetic AA and kind of gray AA. And then you get to some place with another pocket of enthusiasm where people are really excited and involved. You go, and these pockets of enthusiasm, in my experience, have always been places where there's a strong sponsorship ethic. And the reason for that is the strong sponsorship ethic gets people doing things that they would not do left to their own devices. Very few of us would do anything terribly inconvenient or, or not what appears to be not in our self-interest if we were not at least psychologically intimidated, maybe intimidation is too strong a word, psychologically led into doing them by someone whom we respected. See, I know in my experience, I, uh, I was in and out of AA for many years. And I came, certainly the conclusion of A could not cover my case because the, the, the thousands of dollars I spent in psychoanalysis didn't seem to be able to correct me and, the, and my breakthroughs in metaphysics didn't seem to help me and my readings in Nietzsche and Schopenhauer didn't help me. How was some out-of-work plumber going to help me? <laughs> well, it's fair to the joints. Ha, 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 ha. I've never said that before, and I'm never going to say it again. I thought I got accused of it at the moment. That's why I talk so long. I know that sooner or later I'll say something clever I haven't heard before. <laughs> and what uh, I came to AA, and you know, sponsors in much, many areas, and lots to all kinds of people. Sponsors are people. Now, for 
somebody, an imitation slick like me, not even sparkles to be slick, but pretend to think I'm slick, if you want to get a sponsor, tell you who you get. Get, find the biggest name in the area. Southern California, Chuck Chamberlain is my sponsor, or whoever it might be. And then, have them be your sponsor. Ask them to be their, your sponsor. And then, as soon as they get to be your sponsor, stay away from them. They're liable to tell you things you want to hear anyway, and they're all, doesn't understand your case. And it got to be, I didn't really have much time for my sponsor until after you have a couple drinks. Then there's always time to call your sponsor. Hello, Fred. This is Clancy. I've got something sad to tell you. I'm afraid I've let you and AA down. I've had a few drinks. Now, if you've got, if you've got a loving sponsor, he says, Oh, you haven't let us down. You're just sick. You've had a relapse, that's all. I'm coming right over. And I'll bring a couple of the guys with me. Who says, well, I'm going to bring you a pint so you're all going to relapse. And we'll get you through this. And he gets there. Maybe if you need a few bucks, let me know, yeah? Now, that's what I call sponsor. <laughs> Unfortunately, I fell into evil hands this last time. I got some boob who didn't understand sponsorship. He'd say things to me like, Kids, call me anytime you want to, day or night. If it's night, it better be pretty goddamn important, I'll tell you that. If you call me before you drink, because if you call me after you drink, all you're going to hear from me is a click in the dial tone. Now, what a nasty way to treat newcomers. I've been a newcomer for years. I don't want to treat newcomers. I've been a newcomer longer than he's been a sponsor. I'll tell you that. And he would he'd say things to him. I want you to do the things I tell you. And I, one of the problems is they didn't have any front teeth and they'd been kicked out in the Phoenix jail and I wasn't really able to get those consonants. Listen, <coughs> here, Bob. But he had me because I was living in an abandoned car in the 80 Club parking lot. There wasn't a hell of a lot of wasted to run. I said, I'm going home, goddammit. I'm going to sleep in my car. Somebody else's car. But I tried to stay out of his sight because he would have me do dumb things. And, and I look back now, and he was, he was establishing a structure in my life. You know, I said, Bob, I have no money, Bob. I here's him. I don't know what to do. Get a job. <laughs> I get a job, Jesus Christ, Bob. Huh? Look how terrible I look. Get a terrible job. Yeah. Now that isn't the sort of thing I would recommend, and I don't. I wouldn't do that today. I'm tough, but I'm not that tough. But for a puke like me, that's what I just needed. I'm, I just, I hated him. I used to lie awake and I think, I'm gonna kill that old bastard someday. <laughs> Several times my first year of sobriety, I've said this many times, you know, I'd lay awake at night and think, I'm going to turn him into the world service office. <laughs> I could just, I never had the money to do it, but I could just visualize myself. I just want you to know, there's an old timer in Los Angeles killing newcomers. 
and I'll give you his name and address. And now, of course, things are different. Many years later, when I talk to the World Service Office, I say, no, I'm not. <laughs> but I was a believer in strong sponsorship. That's what saved my life. I'm not as tough. I don't believe, I, probably my sponsor was not as tough as I remember him being. They would have still been taking that crap, you know. There had to be warm spots in there, but you forget the warm. Just remember how it changed my life. Remember, there are certain, you know, you would say things like, do what I tell you. And I would try to stay out of sight, but when he, you know, one of the, some of the great things that I did in my life, I did, for example, I, uh, when I was about, I don't know, five or six months over, I had several jobs. Dishwasher I'd been fired at. Uh, I'd been fired as a furniture mover. It lasted till noon the first day. Just moving this furniture. Let me stop I used to be a highly successful man. I directed the Grand Opera at the University of Texas. Ads that I wrote are still running in Collier's and Life magazine, the old board ads. I've had my picture in the New York Times, for Christ's sake, and here I am in an old, without any teeth, moving furniture. And I was thinking about this. <laughs> the guy said, hey, you, without the teeth, you bumped my lamp. And just two words. I said, no, you're, you're mistaken, sir. I broke your lamp. Good. And I got fired. I didn't see that guy and let him make amends to me. But I had a terrible time with him. Worked in the jewelry store. A guy running the jewelry store made me be a janitor. And I got fired on Christmas Eve because you felt like dusting too long along the watches, you know. And I felt bad about that because I could really see myself like in Seattle starting a new year. See anything you like? <laughs> got a banner on here you'd like? Well, I was about six months over at this meeting one night, and I was just feeling so bad. There's a coffee break, and I stand near the podium. I never got called on. I knew that's part of the persecution. I'm doing something about sponsors. If you get sponsors, try not to get one with snitches. There's nothing in the world worse. Because then you don't have to watch response, but you're being spied on by others. You don't know who they are. And I stand at this point, and I noticed this woman sitting over there, standing there talking to one of her friends, and I just hated her. Her name was a Mary Elizabeth or some name like that. And I hated her. I just, she was three years sober and she acted so smart. And she, she oh, that was like Mary Elizabeth. And I thought, you puke. And she had personally attacked me a couple of times. And I just hated her. I just sitting there thinking, if I could just smash your face. And here goes my sponsor. Yes. Yeah. Yes, what is it? Now I want you to go over and apologize to Mary Elizabeth. I said, apologize? For what? She said, someone told me that you called her a bitch. I said, Bob, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but she is a bitch. <laughs> if that's your opinion, we don't care. Why do you think she's a bitch? Well, if you must know, she told her newcomer not to go to bed with me. <laughs> But she was absolutely right. Go and apologize. I thought, this is the end of the trail. You know, humiliated, and she can hear this going on. And publicly humiliated one more time by a God who doesn't ever try to take my side of anything, but listen to his goddamn snitches and goes along with these broads. And 
Now, just getting a phrase together, I wanted to really lay it on. He say, Bob, why don't you take your 12 golden steps and wrap them in the traditions which are to the group as the steps are to the individual? Maybe you could tie a bow made of the 12 concepts and slip it into a container of the 12 promises and take the package and stick it up your nose. See, I'm not going to do this, take this crap anymore. And I was just about to tell him that, just to watch him turn white. And it suddenly struck me, something that had evaded me for six months. I look back now, it's probably the greatest thing that ever happened in my life, as far as AA direction is concerned. But at the time, it just seemed like I, was, I found a new way out. It suddenly struck me. I don't have to mean I'm sorry. I just have to go to that bitch and tell her I'm sorry. <laughs> and I can think to myself, I hope you rot in hell, you old pig. I go, okay, Bob. <laughs> you bitch. <laughs> and my life got a lot easier after that, so I wasn't... I didn't have to debate whether or not I was sincere about things. I took a lot of actions I didn't believe in. I thought they were stupid. But as I did them, I'd laugh to myself and think, that simple old puke thinks I mean this. <laughs> Here, let me get you some more coffee. <laughs> you goof. But I took a lot of action, and my life began to change. And my life changed on the basis of actions I did not believe and that I sneered at. And in taking those actions, little by little, my life began to change. In retrospect, I believe my life took a turn. I was starting then to take actions that would instill some form of emotional structure in my life. And I think that's what they mean in our book when they talk about, when they say it specifically. They talk about a magic word. And sometimes we get lost and we think prayer is the magic word. We think spirituality is the magic word. We think understanding is the magic word. We think sifting things out and feeling one another's thoughts is the magic word. None of these are. Action is the magic word. You act whatever your feelings are. In fact, it is more necessary to act when you feel bad than when you feel good. Action is the thing that changes. The one thing that differentiates Alcoholics Anonymous from all other therapies that have failed in the treatment of alcoholism in the last 5,000 years is that therapy says things like, you come to us and we will change your thinking and eventually your actions will change. Alcoholics Anonymous, whether by divine intercession or blind luck, stumble onto an exact opposite. You come to us, we will change your actions and eventually your thinking will change. So we discovered we have to do a lot of things, there's a lot of things we have to do because we can never really depend upon our emotions. We can, no, maybe some people can, but we cannot depend on our perceptions. There isn't a person in this world, in this room certainly, or in this world and all anonymous that I know, who can guarantee how you're going to feel when you wake up tomorrow morning. Whether you're going to feel chipper, or gum, or cross or happy or greeting a new day or thinking, God damn it, on and on. 
and yet we must live in days, all the rest of our lives, where emotions come and go, where we violate rules that they give us. We do get hungry, and we do get angry, and we do get lonely, and we do get tired. And to think about these things, these are perception disorders. Most of us know that, that that's what's wrong with those not that they're bad, but they change the way things look. When you're hungry, for example, you'll notice people all know that and become stupid and slow. I don't know why that is. I noticed it in the restaurant this morning. I was hungry and the wages were stupid and slow. She shaped up after I ate, but for a while it, I almost gave up on it. When you're angry, God wants me to kill people for their own good. I don't know why. I can just hear him say, get that driver that cut you off and push him in the ditch. Thy will be done, Father. I don't really do it, but I, I check it out. When you're lonely, we all have been lonely. You just all know that I know they're all somewhere doing something they didn't tell me about. They used to, but they all like each other better than they like me. Damn them. I never liked them anyway. When you're tired, when, when you're tired, they attack. I don't know why. You notice the next time you're really tired, people will go out of their way to hurt you. I uh, Again, I've used this example a number of times, but sometimes I can get up in the morning. I'm quite tired. I've been doing something late that before. And I get on the Santa Monica freeway to get downtown. I've been sober a lot of years. I know how to look not tired. I get on that freeway and I'm dressed well and I'm exhausted, but I'm driving and I may hum a little tune to throw them off. <laughs> but they know. I can just see some old lady up at La Cienega saying, See the boy in the gray cat? He's exhausted. I'm going to cut that son of a bitch off. If I haven't caught him by my exit, I just... Good flying, Red Baron. We'll meet again. <laughs> and the trouble is, if you do catch him, you can't do anything. AA spoils that. All you can do is maybe get next to him and give him a, a raise. <laughs> Three or four years ago, I was coming off the Santa Monica Freeway into the Harbor Freeway, and some little girl cut me off and almost put me into an overhead over the cement thing and I almost got killed and I'll tell you I got next to her and I gave her a quadruple killer ray <laughs> and then I suddenly realized now here's this little girl about 17 years old with long blonde hair and blue eyes and downtown driving probably not probably doing something for her mother for all I know Okay, oh, guys, I got a granddaughter that looks almost like that. My granddaughter's about that same age driving, too. And what do I do if some old curmudgeon came and picked out her? So I smiled at this girl, and she went. Oh. I'll tell you, I was glad I had a strong sponsor that day. Uh, you're going into the ditch, bitch.
What I'm trying to point out is that no matter how long you're sober, you still are a human being and you have human emotions. And we do get hungry and angry and lonely and tired. And things do look different. And people hurt our feelings and all sorts of things. And things don't work the way we want. And here we have to have some, some series of actions that we can superimpose over our perceptions. As the old saying goes, you, your head sometimes is not your friend. It is telling you data that it's not really correct. So you got to have a structure. That's why to this day I still go to meetings, a number of meetings. I, uh, I don't suppose I've heard anything new in an AA meeting in 25 years. But I always feel better when I leave a meeting because I've been re-perceived again little by little. Or my mind has been off myself on something or someone else. But I think the great value of spon being sponsored now, I, uh, my first sponsor was a strong, tough guy. When I was about two and a half years sober, he, uh, he was 15 years sober. And he had kind of stopped going to meetings a lot of the time. He had found a college meeting. And then he got mad. He went to that one meeting on Monday night. Then he got mad at them because they made a change in the format that he didn't like. They put the birthday cakes before the coffee break at the back. Some really important thing, but we all get into that dumb little thing, I'll tell you. And he stopped going to that meeting. And I said, you know, I said, Bob, you know, you said if you don't go to meetings, they'll get you. He says, look, I told you how to live, don't tell me how to live. And there's not much you can argue about that. And a few months later, he, uh, he began to take some medications that his doctor prescribed him for his depression. And a few months after that, he was drunk, and he was dead. Died drunk. And I wasn't really stable by this time, and my people would say to me, God, I hope this doesn't take away your belief in that you had worked so hard to stay sober all these years. Now you're sober, now you're sponsored. Does that undo your faith in AA? And I'd tell him, no. It just proves everything my sponsor said was right. So he told me all these things, and then he said, if you don't do them, you'll get drunk and die. And he didn't do them, and he got drunk and died. That accentuates the validity of what he's telling us. And so I went a couple of years without a sponsor, because I was pretty smart and I sponsored a number of people, and I was doing quite well. And uh, I was working in a television station in Hollywood. My family had moved out from the Midwest. I gave them another chance to put me into bankruptcy. Had a little son new son. In fact, uh, next week after his graduation, an engineering school at the university. So the crapheads think he knows more than I do. <laughs> if he weren't so big, I'd punch it out of him. But, but I, uh, I spoke at the Southern California Convention. I guess it was on my seventh birthday. I talked to old timers here and there. But I, uh, I really didn't have a formal sponsor. So you saw been doing well, why didn't you sponsor? I talked to the Southern California Convention. Uh, in Bakersfield that year, and I felt pretty good because the chairman was some was a guy I sponsored, and the first ten-minute speaker was a, was a guy I sponsored. That was the main speaker. It was just, I was just wonderful Sunday afternoon, and Jesus just and uh, talked about how I came up the streets, and it was now wonderful. My wife was there with me, and another, another guy I sponsored. We were driving home. We were driving, and suddenly struck me: if I got into a jam today, who would I call? We got the band chair. And I couldn't think of anybody 
up to my standards. Bill Wilson, no. He had been good once, but he kind of gotten into Nias and I don't much with him. <laughs> I'd had a talk with him in his office a couple of years before that, sat for an hour and talked to him. He was a nice guy, but he didn't really understand the cutting edge. I went through all the names I knew, and they're all nice people, but it suddenly struck me. I probably haven't been as close to be potentially drunk since the day I got sober. And I thought to myself, well, I'm going to get a sponsor. But who will I get? What do I look for in a sponsor? Well, I have come to believe that continued action is the best thing that ever happened to me. So I'm going to find the most active person I know ahead of me in AA. So I went through all the names, but you know the guy who's most impressive to me? I didn't like him because he's such a smarmy, everybody loved him. I thought if I were diabetic, I'd go into a coma every time he came around. Smarmy old bastard. But what he was was the most active member of Alcoholics Anonymous I had ever seen. His name was Chuck Chamberlain. So I called him up. I'd like to go down to your office tomorrow and talk to you. I said, okay. So I came down to his office the next day. And by this time, I recovered most of my equilibrium, my sense. I said, well, I'll give this poor old spiritual fool a break. I will let him sponsor someone who's on the way up. And so he said to me, he said, you know, uh, I was at the meeting in Bakersfield yesterday afternoon when you spoke. I said, yes. Pretty nice meeting, huh? Yes, you had all those people there, your sponsor. You gave such a wonderful talk. He said, I thought maybe you came down here to offer to be my sponsor. And I realized I was in deep trouble. <laughs> but he became my sponsor. And for the next 20, maybe 25 years, there never was a week I didn't talk to him, wherever I was in the world, or wherever he was in the world. I didn't do it for him. Most of the time, I, I never needed any advice. I never needed any, you know. In fact, when he got old and sick, I was calling up and asking what I could do for him. But the fact that I made that call gave me a part of the security of being in the endless structure from Bill Wilson to infinity. And I, a structure was a great, great structure for me. That's it is very difficult to be a good sponsor without having a sponsor. And I, people say, well, there's nobody in this area to be a sponsor. There's got to be somebody whom you respect. It doesn't have to be somebody wonderful that you like who is the most glamorous person. Someone you respect, especially, of course, most of us know, most of us in this room are a sober a little longer, but when you're new, it must be someone you respect enough so that you, you will allow them to superimpose actions you don't believe in. That's the hardest single thing I think in AA recovery is that surrender. Because, you know, we hear speakers talk about I surrender to this wonderful program, and uh, when wonderful others that, and that is the way it works. That is not the way humans do it. That's podium talk. Here's what, you know. Shut up, George. <laughs> what happens is more like this. You know, Bill Wilson went, boom. But that is what happens to us. We, we throw in the towel, and the first chance we get, we ease it back. Then you spend the rest of your life carrying off small strips if that'll satisfy the dirty bastard. How much more do you want? I've given so much already. There's a perpetual emotional surrender. That's one of the hard that's what makes old timers get drunk. 
They get carried away. They know so much about it, they feel they don't have to surrender anymore. And we all have to surrender. That's why we need interrelationships. That's why we need to go to meetings and be involved. They help remembering the basic law. If knowledge was the answer, there'd never been a need for AA. But it isn't. What we need is emotional reinforcement to mainstream structures of actions that enable people like the United States over. That's why today there are more, I think it would be safe to say, there are more sober people, alcoholics, in this room than were in the United States in 1935. So we just took it for granted. Not a big turnout today, just more alcoholics sober than was in the entire United States a few years ago. And yet we take it for granted, think so what? Because we are inured to just taking things for granted, maybe. But it's such a miracle. It's such a miracle. And for most people, that miracle cannot play, take place without a dramatic change in actions. And hardly anybody will dramatically change their actions without a strong motivation, an ongoing motivation. Not only a motivation, but a clear perspective outside of their own varying winds in their own head. It's got to be somebody outside there who says, I don't care how it looks to you, here is how it is. Because alcoholics analogous to you, here is how it is. Because Alcoholics Anonymous in the last analysis gets down to what it always has been. Alcoholics Anonymous is, I think it's safe to say, exactly what it was on June 10th, 1935. It is not this book. It is not meetings. It is not literature. It is not the service structure. It is not prayer. It is not spiritual growth. All of these things are exceptionally helpful to Alcoholics Anonymous. But that is what Alcoholics Anonymous is. Alcoholics Anonymous is and continues to be one alcoholic talking to another alcoholic to help him reduce his feelings of being different at least enough so that he will begin to take actions he does not yet believe in. And that's what Bill Wilson started with Dr. Bob Smith. And that's what a sponsor today, staying down with a newcomer somewhere, having a cup of coffee tonight before the meeting, is going to be doing the same thing. Yes, you can believe me enough to take this action, whether you believe in it or not. Because then, when that changes, then the perceptions change. So that is why sponsorship is such a valuable thing. As much as I would like to think of myself as a tough sponsor, and I do have a reputation of being a tough sponsor, but you can't really treat people all that tough. There's got to be, there's got to be something in it for them, but, you know, because it's not, they say, well, my, they say about me sometimes, he's a dictator, a goddamn dictator. You forget, it is impossible to be a dictator without the absolute acceptance of the dictatee. Because all you have to do, if you don't like it, you say, hey, I don't want to hear any more. Buzz off. And that's the end of that dictatorship. So it struck me it would be more effective if we had some police or security group could come in the night and say, did you say screw you to your sponsor? Do you still have relatives in Akron, Ohio? But you know, so it has to be, there has to be a love 
what they perceive, because no one's going to take strictness. We talk, we joke about strictness, but really all you want to do, if every individual is a little different, but you've got to make sure they take the action. Now, if they do not take the actions, you've got to do them the favor of saying, well, I don't want to be your sponsor. Because you are laboring under misapprehension, you've got a sponsor when you don't have a sponsor. You say you've got a sponsor, but you're, but you're using your own judgments. And here, that's what you're trying to do away with in moments of crisis, not to rely on that tornado inside my head, but rather on a, a clear and apart and objective viewpoint of emotional problems. Sponsors get a lot of credit for quite simple advice sometimes, because it just isn't caught up in all the embroiled and that nonsense inside the head. I, uh, I, as I said, as I said earlier, I firmly believe that's the case in the world. Because it doesn't make difference where you go in the world. In the last two or three years, I've had the opportunity to talk in exotic places like New Zealand and Tahiti and Hawaii and Mexico and Canada and London and Glasgow and Dublin and Belfast and Paris and Berlin. Berlin shortly after the wall came down. I'm not telling you, except for the accents, it's the same crap you hear right here in Port Angeles. You hear somebody, but uh, I don't think you understand. Uh, my case is different. <laughs> oh, that's all here. Let me write your name down. Because <laughs> we're dealing with the same basic problem. Emotional perceptions of reality that cannot be overcome emotionally. There's no way to get in there and change human emotion. But we'd like to think there is, but there isn't. One in a million or one in five million have a spiritual experience. But you and I can't count on it. As Dr. Jung says, it's like being struck by lightning. You can't really count on that as a therapy. You can, but you're going to be screwed, I'll tell you that. So we've got to find something different. And that's where actions come in. And actions must bring about a structure of living. So at least you know when you're out of them. So you don't fall over the cliff up there. I didn't even know I was off the path. And that's where sponsorship is about. And I don't know of anything more important to the sponsor or the baby than sponsorship. Because that brings about all of the other blessings that come. And we continue to do it. I like the last phrase of that long this sponsorship applies to the last phrase of the long form of the traditions because it really brings it home. This to the end, that our great blessings may never spoil us, and we shall live in thankful contemplation of him who presides over us all. And that's what sponsorship brings about. I hope we all are fortunate enough to make use of it. Thank you.